This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 12, 2018, the Carpool Justice Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in D.C. in one part of New York and one borough of New York, the borough of Brooklyn, Kings County, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. I'm so glad you added the little Kings County. I can never remember all the counties. I, for my book, I've been having to like look at statistics that break the boroughs up by county. You know, Richmond County is another county. Is Richmond County Staten Island? Yes. And then, Damn. not in Richmond County or the borough of Queens or Bronx, but in the the Man- borough of Manhattan, or maybe it's the borough of New York City, or the, the county of New York, is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. Hello, John. Hello. Welcome back from vacation also. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. On this week's GabFest, is there any chance Democrats can stop Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh? And should they even bother to try? Then President Trump's strange campaign to sabotage NATO, even as he primps for his date with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. And then why, why on earth is the Trump administration trying to sabotage global health efforts that encourage breastfeeding. We will discuss that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we have a live show next week at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, PA, just outside of Philadelphia on Wednesday, 7.30 p.m., July 18th. There's still tickets available. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to join us. There is obviously going to be a boatload of news to discuss and it's going to be really fun. So we would love to see you there. So please come to the Keswick Theater on Wednesday, July 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. On Monday night, President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh, 53-year-old judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to succeed Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh, in one commentator's apt phrase, has been the zealot of Republican lawyers He was a clerk for Justice Kennedy himself. He was a Vince Foster suicide investigator. He was a Lewinsky prober. He was a Star Report author. He was a right-hand man to President George W. Bush. And for the past 12 years, he's been an extremely conservative Supreme Court justice-in-waiting in Washington, making rulings on all kinds of controversial issues. As we've also learned from very... um, pleasant, agreeable pieces published in places like the Washington Post, New York Times. He's a he's a really good carpooler. He likes to drive the carpool. He's a he likes to coach his girls basketball team. There's a lot of talk about that, about what a nice guy he is. And as somebody who's played basketball with him a few times, he's a nice guy. He's like a nice guy, good basketball player. But Emily, you have a bee in your bonnet about this, which is to to use your phrase back at you. Every time conservatives get nominated, some liberals come forward and make the case for them. This is happening with Kavanaugh. Should it be? Here is what I was thinking about this morning. 
you know, there were these four candidates, four finalists for this job and some discussion of the differences among them. And the way in which they are different is not really a matter of votes. So if we're just talking about like a solid conservative uh, majority, a solid conservative juggernaut, as Adam Liptak of The New York Times has been saying, then um, any of these folks are good for that job. And that's obviously the most important thing a Supreme Court justice does. But they differ in terms of their story. Stories, their personal lives, which is going to matter a great deal in the next couple months for the confirmation hearings. And then they may differ in terms of the reasoning they use and the power of their intellect and their power to convince other justices and, you know, make big moves in the law by forming coalitions and getting all the other conservatives on board. And Kavanaugh's story is going to be tricky um, to some degree because of his role in the star investigation and the fact that he's touched like a million pieces of paper. So there's going to be some document fighting going on. And then also because of his law review articles in which he has talked about his doubts about the idea that a president can be criminally investigated. Now, this is like him kind of doing a mea culpa or a regret over his own role in the Starr investigation when obviously, like, he investigated President Clinton. So that's going to be an interesting part of this discussion. And then there's just the fact this is a very conservative judge with a very conservative record on the hotly contested issues, on abortion, on environmental laws, on voting rights, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I mean about liberals coming forward to make the case for him, and this happened in The New York Times, Akhil Amar, who's a colleague of mine at Yale Law School, and then there was also a press release with some liberal law professors at Yale Law School praising Kavanaugh. There's a kind of question about, like, why? And, you know, every time in my memory, since I've been covering the court, which I think is since John Roberts joined the court, this is always part of the pattern. And I think part of it is a kind of nostalgia for an apolitical court, a notion that there are criteria for judging Supreme Court nominees that are not partisan and not ideological. Wishful thinking about the position of these justices and of American law. You know, there are ways, and we've been talking about this, that Supreme Court justices do things all the time that are very kind of law-bound. They look at statutes. They agree on how to read them. There are not big ideological questions that come into play. But in the most important actions that Supreme Court justices take, politics and increasingly partisanship really do inform what they do. And it seems to me, at least, increasingly blind to pretend otherwise. So anyway, I wonder what you guys think about that. Two questions about Kavanaugh. Is he himself particularly political? Because you could imagine a space for an argument where you say, sure, this is a conservative jurist, but um, they're going to call balls and strikes. And that's part of maybe what you were describing, Emily, as kind of the old fashioned way of looking at it. So there's the there's the question. And, and we should note in that context that that Mitch McConnell questioned Elena Kagan's impartiality as a former White House official when she was up for the court. So this has been a question of whether candidates themselves are specifically political relative to whatever the standard is for normal Supreme Court justices. Then there's the larger context, which bleeds into basically all the coverage of, of politics these days right now, which is that we are in a special time with respect to the Supreme Court. We do have 
the move by Mitch McConnell to block Merrick Garland's uh, even coming up for a hearing, which is unprecedented, particularly with respect, and I don't need to go back into Abe Fortas, but particularly with respect to the most analogous case where you had a Democratic president going out of office, working with a Republican leader to actually put somebody on the court at a later period in an election year. So what some liberals are saying is, wait a minute, in a world where the majority leader of the Senate can block a guy from even being heard, let's dispense with this kind of old-fashioned notion of of looking at these judges as if they're not in a political context. So I would say, first of all, that I would be so happy if this metaphor of balls and strikes and umpires could be just <laughs> like dead on arrival forever. And the reason I say that it has zero meaning, like, is Brett Kavanaugh fair in the sense that he will judge the facts before him? Sure. So all of them are. But I think what we mean by that merely is we have no evidence of like outright corruption. Right. You know, if anyone thinks that Brett Kavanaugh is going to get on the Supreme Court and like suddenly change his mind about abortion rights after having dissented, you know, last year in a case in which the issue was an undocumented teenager who was in government custody. She said she wanted an abortion. The Trump administration didn't want to facilitate that. Kavanaugh dissented from the ruling that allowed her to get the procedure. And he, you know, used this sort of he he's very smart and and also savvy and so he didn't go as far as one of his colleagues in like denouncing Roe for no particular reason because it wouldn't have had any legal utility but he talked about what what she was asking for as some brand new right to abortion on demand that's like a kind of linguistic flair that you use to you know tell abortion opponents that you're on their side. I don't know what it would mean for him to have an open mind about that. He has prior expressed views. Judges tend to have prior views that they bring to their work. And there are cases that come before the Supreme Court that matter deeply to American society in which there is more than one possible answer. And so they pick the answer that lines up with their ideological preferences. But, so, Emily, you're, but it, from what I can see, your, your, your objection to Kavanaugh comes down to an objection to any possible person that a Republican president would nominate, which is that any possible person a Republican president would nominate would have these criteria. And and the fact that Garland was so uh, viciously and, and uh, savvily blocked by McConnell means that the process or was, was just further evidence that this process is is wholly compromised and therefore Democrats shouldn't go along with it. But it doesn't sound like you think there's any if if Kavanaugh doesn't meet your criteria for a, a potential justice that Democrats could say nice things about, then it sounds like probably nobody would. Well, probably no one who President Trump would pick. But I think the context, the second point John made, at least to me, is crucial because we're in this world still of a different um, composition of the Supreme Court because of what happened with Merrick Garland. And the other thing that concerns me is that and we already were in this world in the last year or so with Kennedy, but we are increasingly going and even beyond the last year with Kennedy. We are going to continue to have a court in which there are four moderate liberals appointed by Democratic presidents and four real conservatives nominated by Republican presidents. And that we have not had that for at least the last half century. There was crossover. There was crossover because for the most part, Republicans were kind of fumbling and not 
producing reliably conservative justices all the time, right? I'm talking about David Souter, John Paul Stevens, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Kennedy himself in a few particular ways. We are losing that in the same way that in Congress we have lost bipartisan crossover. And that polarization is both producing more extreme Supreme Court picks and also making Congress less functional as a branch that does its job. And so then you have this sort of vacant a power vacuum that the Supreme Court kind of steps into, which is why, sorry, I hope this isn't too circuitous, one of the key questions about Kavanaugh that people like Cass Sunstein um, have been asking and Jack Goldsmith, who's a conservative Harvard law professor, is hopeful about this. One big question is about this idea of judicial restraint. So this is different from like the conservative to liberal axis. This is how much do you believe the judges should step in and solve problems? And, you know, Jack Goldsmith, maybe Cass Sunstein are hopeful that John Roberts is a minimalist, a judicial restraint person, and that Kavanaugh will be as well. I think it's totally unclear that those things are true, but that will be a really big question um, coming forward. But Emily, look, I I think that this this calcified and concrete conservative majority on the Supreme Court is has baleful, will have baleful effects for all kinds of reasons, which I'll get into in a second. But it's it's also conservatives are not wrong when they point out that a very liberal the supreme court was relatively quite liberal a long time in the late 20th century and that no that's just a false premise. it's not a but false continue. premise in the 1960s it was true the right. warren court, the warren that court is absolutely liberal, true right? yeah, beyond yeah. that yes. you're just that's I, what he's I talking about yeah he's just yeah, the, he just there's but there's he, picked a, the wrong, a, he picked the wrong time yeah, but he's talking a, about 1960s all right and then it was uh you know sort of moderate left for a while. And then it's become, you know, in the past 25 on years, some very issues. conservative. I mean, not on corporate power and, you know, corporations versus workers, for example. Keep going. It's um, been extremely pro-corporate for decades. Yeah. For the no, for the past 30 years, it's been extremely yeah. pro-corporate for sure. But it, but there, there, this is why there was a conservative project to go after the court was the sense that, wow, the court is really gone. And, and not just the Supreme Court, but the the lower courts have become much more liberal than we conservatives can tolerate and actually more liberal than the, the the people are. Now we have a court that is wildly more conservative than the people are. I thought there was a wonderful piece by John Casty in The New Yorker saying what's so demoralizing about the court is there is not – the court does not re- represent any actual popular desire for, as he says – you know, for bans on abortions, restrictions on collective bargaining, roadblocks to legal claims against big companies, or the purging from the electoral rolls of voters who skip a couple of elections. There, there isn't there isn't actually popular demand for any That's of right. the things that the Supreme Court is going to uphold or has, a, you know, has indicated it's going to uphold. And that's and that. And so now not only is the not only is Congress itself wildly more conservative than the voters who vote for it, the president is wildly more conservative than the voters who voted for him and in fact was not elected by a majority of the voters well and the supreme court is now the so a third branch of government is going to have the same quality and that's that's a recipe for a a non-democratic and non-representative government system 
let me give my own version of the history that you are glossing over, which you may disagree with. I mean, I think what happened in the 60s and the 70s was that conservatives picked up a a few key issues on which they thought the court was wildly liberal. So there's the law and order complaints from Richard Nixon because of the Warren Court precedents expanding the rights of criminal defendants. There's Roe versus Wade. Not immediately. Let's remember that Roe was seven to two by the Burger Court. But by the late 70s, obviously, that has become a big wedge issue. And then I would say school prayer is also something that really incensed conservatives and got them going. There's all this other stuff the court does that matters so much. Voting rights, you know, things like campaign finance, the rights of workers versus corporations. And I don't think the court has been out of step toward the left on those issues. But it is absolutely true that conservatives have succeeded much more than liberals in making the court a voting issue. And so, yeah, now we're where you just said. And I guess my big question is whether the court will figure out a way to steer a path that is very conservative, but not so out of step that the country like revolts in some way. So like that's door number one is like John Roberts finds a path through this and the kind of institutional legitimacy of the court is preserved and the court does some things that are conservative, but it's like okay in the end because Roberts emerges as more of a centrist figure. I don't personally hold out a lot of hope for this, but it's possible. And it goes with this judicial restraint idea. Door number two is a court that really, really goes to the right, but in a way that puts it at odds not only with the American public, but eventually with Congress and the presidency. And then you get to a scenario that's like 1937. Um, Barry Friedman, a NYU law professor who wrote a book all about the court and public opinion, has been prophesying this, the idea of like the FDR FDR court packing scheme, um, which was bad for, for him as a president, bad for the court, the court backed down. Right. So it's a crisis. It's a constitutional crisis even, but it gets resolved through the political system. Door number three is like a slow erosion of rights, especially voting rights and like fair and accessible elections in a way that while the court is frustrating popular will, the the public loses its way to elect Democrats, effectively, like the court is really entrenching Republican partisan power. And that's scary. Like, I don't know where that ends. I was talking to Mark Tushnet, another um, really interesting con law professor about this the other day. And he was like, well, that's the 1960s. But you could also argue that that's the 1850s. So anyway. So the court packing thing confuses me, though, because it was the court knocking down FDR FDR either legislation or uh, administrative actions that caused him to want to pack the court so he could stop getting his, his the things he wanted to do undone. Were you referring to the court that was undoing all the stuff he wanted to do or yeah. the court or okay. Yeah, so like um, imagine that the dem- you know People, I'm just, I don't know if it's going to happen, but imagine not. like a world in which there's a Democratic Congress and president and they pass Medicare for all. And the court says that's unconstitutional. That's, um, you know, goes too far yeah. in terms of congressional authority. There's no power in the Commerce right. Clause to do this. That's that's what I mean. Uh, John, I want to ask you a question about a subject that is very near and dear to your heart, which is the ability of people to change their mind. One of the big Kavanaugh issues is his view on uh, executive power and his view in particular on whether a president should be uh, distracted or um, 
paralyzed by a investigation of possible wrongdoing by the president. And he, of course, rose to prominence, Kavanaugh, as part of Ken Starr's team of prosecutors and investigators who uh, did a quite a lot to waylay and undermine the Clinton presidency with an investigation of President Clinton's sexual misbehavior and and per- potential perjury. Uh, as then he moved on to the White House, where he worked on President George W. Bush's staff through 9-11 and, and through the rise of Homeland Security concerns and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he he says he went underwent a change of heart and his change of heart leads him to believe that the president should should we should be very leery of allowing prosecutors to investigate the president for criminal or civil wrongdoing in office. Mm -hmm. First of all, do you think this this is an important issue that we really need to get to the bottom of in terms of who he's going to be as a justice or is it sort of a sideshow? And two, do you think it's a credible change of heart? Well, it's so interesting. I I think they're related because Akhil Amar in his case that he makes for Kavanaugh, um, I couldn't tell in reading the New York Times piece by Akhil Amar whether he was slightly concerned trolling or whether he meant it all 100% straight up as he wrote it. Because basically he says, well, Kavanaugh's change of heart about how he carried out the um, his duties for Star and what he thinks now – represent just exactly what you want in judges which is their ability to change their mind and have adaptive thinking as the as the uh, as they mature and as they're as they're faced with different kinds of facts i think a lot of liberals think just he just changed his views based on where he was sitting i mean he just you know so when it was in his interest to uh go after a democratic president he held one view and then when he was protecting the executive power of another of a republican president he changed his mind so i don't know i'm not in his heart um uh it, it obviously matters to those people who think that he was picked um and i don't know if that, that there's any evidence for this but that he was picked because the president thinks one day his um his issues might appear before the court, and this is a more sympathetic voice based on what he's written before. He's not the only one who has argued that a president shouldn't be pinned down by civil and criminal action outside of the uh, impeachment process. Bill Clinton's lawyers certainly argued that. Um, basically, and any they lawyer, lost on the civil front. Right. But I, my point is that if you're trying to identify where this strain of thinking comes, yes, 100%. Um, it comes from both Democratic and Republican presidents. I mean, I guess what I keep thinking about with this is this is like a bad movie. Like, it's not even a movie. It's like a bad television show that a president who's under investigation and then there's, um, you know, a big separation of powers question. Can he be subpoenaed? Let's just start with that. Can Mueller make him sit down and ask questions? The deciding vote potentially for that question is going to be someone who the president has chosen who has on the record this particular public change but of heart. Kavanaugh made it very clear in that law review article, which I have not read, but just read people saying this. So I assume that when they say he made it very clear, <laughs> he did, that Congress would have to pass a law to protect the president from this kind of investigation. So he doesn't. I don't know he, about that. No, he said that would be his preference, that but, if, if the best way to address this was would be for Congress but, to provide immunity. He didn't say that but, the court but he is, step it's in impl- if But is it implicit in that? My belief mm. is that there is no such protection exists now, that the Constitution no, provides no I, protection. I mean, I think, it's, I think you really can read those articles both ways. And people are reading into them what they want to read. And also, obviously, he's not bound by exactly what he said. That's number anyways. one. Number two, uh, 
well, in, in the case of an indictment, that's a this is a bigger issue. But in the case of a subpoena, I can't imagine like John Roberts does not want to have a court which divides five four on partisan grounds over a subpoena. No, he, he he's going right. to make sure he gets you know eight votes in in one direction or another on that, and so or finds a compromise so that they don't have to rule at all. Uh, I and, mean, maybe we'll see. It'll and be Mueller really is not going to indict. Mueller's not going to indict the president. He's not going to do it. He doesn't believe he can. He's not going to do it. He'd have to be. It would cause such a crisis that he, it's so unlikely to happen. And so, so I don't think, I think Kavanaugh right is going to have to. We'll not have to rule on that. But here's the thing that also bothers me, though. Like, what if we're so? What if you're right about all of that? Um, and what if because Mueller doesn't want to prompt a potentially, you know, devastating clash, he doesn't subpoena Trump? In other words, the the elevation of Kavanaugh just fends off what otherwise mm. would have been a pretty clearly permissible thing to do. Like when you go back and you look at the opinions about um, Clinton and Nixon, in which I think there were either eight or I think nine votes that suggest, right, we're going back to the Nixon tapes. It's not a subpoena of the president, but you go back and you read those Supreme Court opinions. It looks to me like Mueller can make Trump sit down and ask questions. What if Mueller decides not to push it because of the scenario, like because of where we are with this particular Supreme Court, that in itself is a deep loss, I would say, or at least like a problem. If other well, institutions is, start to behave strangely because they are reacting to what is itself like looks not good, it, that's not that's bad. I feel like you're a little deep and <laughs> hypothetical, but all right. I, look, we've been talking about this a while. There are two quick things I want to get to before we wrap this Um for you, John, um, one is why, given what Emily said at the beginning, which is that any conservative justice has is basically going to end up ruling the same way. Why does Trump bother to name yet another middle-aged white guy from Yale? Like that's number one. And number two is, do you see any political danger to Kavanaugh, or does it feel like the, you know the votes are pretty locked? Well, on the first, why not? And from the Trump. Looking at this, particularly from the Trump perspective, why not nominate another white male? I think, I mean, he they, he has a different view of these kinds of things, I think. Secondly, I think having Amy Comey Barrett in the wings is a sort of elect me one more time and then we really, then we really are going to, you know, because he's got a chance at one or two more um, uh, Supreme Court seats if he if he wins if he has an eight-year term or eight-year presidency i should say totally agree with that analysis and then by the way on the court i don't know what you guys think i we had uh, chuck schumer on the show this week and you know he he basically sounded like he was aiming right for collins and murkowski arguing that uh you know this is uh, that kavanaugh is a is the product of a selection process determined to undo roe so then I said, okay, well, if he's determined to undo Roe and the Affordable Care Act, then uh, is would it be a betrayal of the party for any Democrat to vote for him? And he ducked it like it was a boulder rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue. For the um, sake of the and red Joe state Manchin, Democratic senators, right? For this exactly, and so for the sake of the red state de- Democrats who've got a who are going to be under a lot of pressure, by the way, from lots of Democratic constituent groups. Joe Manchin has already pretty much looks like 
unless something crazy comes up, he's going to vote for him. And you had the case, by the way, you had the precedent. Nine voted, nine Republicans, I think, voted for Sotomayor. I can't remember the numbers, but I think it's nine and six for Sotomayor and Kagan in terms of Republicans voting for the nominee of a Democratic president. So I don't know if you're going to have Democrats crossing over unless there's some black swan event, which is to say something in his background that's really uh, highly unexpected. And didn't Gorsuch get 54 votes? So there were like three Democrats who voted for Gorsuch. Yeah, I think Heidkamp. Manchin, yeah, I think somebody else. Donnelly, maybe. And Donnelly, maybe. I, I What you get into in a case like that is if the dam has broken, if there's no way it's not going right. to ha- if there's no you way to block them, him, you'll get a lot. You, yeah. So, in fact, Kavanaugh could get you could imagine a situation in which Kavanaugh gets more votes than Gorsuch, yeah. even though, as Emily has pointed out, the stakes are so much higher. All right. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GapFest and other Slate podcasts. And this week, we're going to talk about the strange scandal engulfing House Republican Jim Jordan and the abuse of wrestlers at Ohio State University when he was assistant wrestling coach there. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member. $35 for your first year. That's a bargain. And you get to hear our Slate plus bonus discussions. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump has wrapped up his short visit to the NATO summit in Brussels. He's now in the UK and then will be heading to the party he really wants to go to, a one-on-one summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. The president spent the lead up to the NATO summit trashing the alliance and he continued much the same while he was while he was in Brussels. He declared that Germany was totally controlled by Russia. He lobbied and insisted that NATO members bump up their defense spending to 4% of GDP, which even the U.S. is not at 4% of GDP. And he generally made clear his scorn for the partnership, ultimately throwing in a few kind words saying, of course, he supports it. This tension with NATO comes as the president has rolled out tariffs on European products. He's withdrawn, of course, from the Paris Climate Agreement, whacked Europe for not supporting our Iran deal cancellation, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. So, John, why has the president been so derisive towards our closest allies and towards our greatest military alliance? What does he get out of that? 
he doesn't believe necessarily in the alliance, although, as you say, on Thursday, he, he was much more for somebody who said that NATO was obsolete and asked in a tweet this week whether why NATO had has to exist at all. He said several times that it was important and necessary for the United States. So I think another possible theory is this is some combination of his just irritation with the Europeans and he wants more he wants them to pay more money. They've promised to spend 2% by 2024. It is it, it seems quite clear that he has in fact gotten them to increase in a way that administrations going back to the 70s who've asked them to to grade, uh, to the NATO members to pay a greater share of their defense. It seemed he seems to have been more successful. So in that case, then there were a lot of people who were arguing he should just go and take a victory lap at the beginning. What's your evidence for that, John? The it's increase like it, in spending. He, I mean, the increase in spending of those countries who have said for a long time, yes, yes, we're going to pay, but they would say, yes, yes, we're going to pay to the Obama administration, and then the president would complain about the free riders uh, in Europe. And so th- when you go from yes, yes, I'm going to pay to immediately going to the president with demonstrations of how much you have paid and are paying, that changes the tenor of it is now front of mind with a lot of these countries, even if it's to deal with the unpredictable and bombastic and irritating American president. They are thinking about it much more today to the extent that this is an objective that's been shared by Republican and Democratic administrations uh, for years and making commitments uh, more now than they were under the previous administration. Emily, so it's pretty clear from Trump's body language, the way he's talked about the two summits, that he's going to be the two primary summits he's attending, the NATO and then his Putin summit, that there's one he's excited about and one he was not. And he really does seem to be pretty eager to get to his meeting with Putin. Um, What's the danger of that of that? summit or is it or is it a huge opportunity is it a chance to reset to have a reset with russia i see two risks i mean the first is that trump does something like tell russia it's like super cool that they invaded crimea don't worry about it um which seems like less of a risk right now given the nato statement he just signed but i mean who knows this is an unpredictable self-contradictory person and the second risk is embracing Putin in a way that sends a message that all the election meddling he's doing in our elections and Brexit, et cetera, is fine. Like, does it matter that, you know, not only are we giving um, countries a pass on human rights violations, but also on this like core question of meddling in democracy. Now, look, Russia's not the only country that meddles in elections. The United States has a history of doing it that too. But that doesn't make it a good idea to encourage Russia when we know that they they have every reason to have their sights trained on our election. And then there's just this weird undercurrent, which is like maybe Trump thinks it's totally fine for Putin to mess around in our election as long as Putin is benefiting Trump, you know, and that is all against this backdrop of um, these larger continual questions about Trump's relationship with Russia over time. And I wonder what you both thought about an article Jonathan Chait wrote um, or at least published this week, kind of laying out a 30 year relationship between Russia and Trump. It has a lot of different moving parts to it. And I was especially struck by a like, response to that article by Tom Nichols, who's like an incredibly astute and experienced um, reporter on U.S.-Russia relations. 
And he was like, look, you know, maybe Che doesn't have everything right along the way. But when you look at this, there's no way not to conclude there's evidence that Russia has damaging information on the president. I found that um, to be quite a hair raising and eyebrow raising statement. What did you guys think about it? Yeah, I thought the Nichols piece was 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 very persuasive in arguing that that a, a the chat outlines an, just an extraordinary amount of contact between Trump and Russia dating 30 years of huge variety of relationships of contacts of interactions which which far outstrip what I think people most people think exist and far outstrip what you think is reasonable for any any particular American to have with with an adversary. A lot of it is really suspicious. It, it It's really hard to imagine that there was a long game which involved them getting Trump elected president. I'm sure it was that mm-hmm. here's this here's this bombastic, egomaniacal, corrupt businessman who's a public figure in America. Let's see what we can let's he's an opportunity. Let's use him as an opportunity. And and who knows what will come with it. And it turned out it was just a, a bet that paid off a hundred, a thousand fold for them. Not because they not because I think he's a he's an actual spy or that he's actually controlled by Russia, but just that there is this, you know, slow manipulation, getting him to sympathize with their interests, to to get him economically tied in with Russians, to uh, just make him listen to them, to hire people like Paul Manafort that that causes him to act in ways that really benefit their interests. And it's it is it is very clear that the, the country that has benefited most from the Trump presidency is Russia, which has had which is, has had this extraordinary rise to prominence. I mean, when you think about it, it's a country which has a GDP that's half the size of California. It's a GDP that's smaller than Germany's. And Trump treats Putin like, you know, they're the two leaders of the world. And yep. Putin is, the, you know, presides over an economically degraded, environmentally degraded, you know, dying country. And and yet he now he's he's because of all this manipulation, he has brought himself back to power and he is he's massively weakened Europe. And it's a very, very depressing. Um, John, what did you think of that that piece? What he's done is is put all of the material even in one place. And and as Nichols writes, it's impossible to see the total picture and reach the conclusion that there's an innocent explanation behind it all. Even if you think that um, Jonathan Chait has has, you know, put his thumb on the scale in several areas. And I think there is a way in which he sort of um, is credulous about basically anything that's said about Trump. Okay, let's take away 20% of what he puts on his list or 30. Still, it's a mountain of stuff. Um, And it just suggests uh, a closeness or an empathy or a a connection to Russia that's curious for an American president um, at a time when the president has, you know, an opposite uh, kind of, feeling about America's traditional allies. I mean, just leaving aside for whether there's there's criminality involved, it's just, is this the national security posture America wants? It doesn't even seem to be the national security posture that the administration wants. If you listen to um, uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, uh, the president's NATO um, ambassador on Face the Nation on Sunday when asked about Russia, she went through a long litany of including, I mean, of, of um, what did she call it? Mal- malign behavior. I mean, point by point by point by point, it was um, everything from poisoning, um, you know, a former Russian spy in Great Britain, which has now killed another person, to uh, Crimea, to what it's doing in 
well, it's adventuresome, adventurism all over the world. And then I'm not even sure she included meddling in the U.S. elections, which, by the way, a senior U.S. official says they are getting daily intelligence reports right now about actions that the Russians are taking to try to Holy destabilize Lord. the, the uh, American system. So so you have to add that to any accounting you have about the closeness between the relationship between the president is then what you really want, what an American president should be doing in, in terms of what's in America's national security interest. I mean, there is a disconnect between the sanctions that are still on Russia, some of them because Congress forced them, um, but, the, but the U.S. is still arming Ukraine and has shut, you know, Russian consulates and things like that. So there are things being taken in other parts of the administration separate and apart from what the president says that are that are anti-Russia. Also, here's what's weird. Putin hates NATO, right? So in one hand, president is on uh, what, Wednesday, he's beating up the Germans, calling them hypocrites, destabilizing NATO, which is all something Putin would love. But when he talks about getting the, those NATO countries to spend more on their own defense, that's not something NATO ne- that, that, that Putin necessarily wants. So that's another thing here that's a bit of a puzzler. The I, I just it, it makes me so depressed. The the NATO alliance and the European the recovery of Europe after World War II have caused the the rise of the two richest continents the world has ever seen. North America and Europe, Western Europe, have become unimaginably wealthy and peaceful and cooperative. And And Europe does a pretty good job of taking care of the people who live there too. And Europe does a pretty good job taking care of well, people who live there, and it's now extended to to the to countries in Eastern Europe that have, had been in in under the Soviet bloc, and it is so incredibly depressing to me to watch us, because in part because of the stupidity of our president, to degrade that alliance, to degrade the value, and and of, I mean of course all these things you know they need to be balanced. Not every you know not everything that Europeans want to do is great and and not every policy they pursue is great and certainly they've gotten huge benefit from being under the american military umbrella where we have we have in fact made enormous investments that have allowed them not to invest in their own military but uh to think that this has not been anything other than an enormous benefit for all the you know the 800 million odd people who live on both continents is crazy and it's it's depressing here's the benign the most benign argument i've heard from somebody's not particularly a defender of the president's in fact not at all but the argument is basically this look at the military level which is where nato matters james mattis is a guy who is like reared in the american tradition of the nato alliance like it's in his bones and he is maintaining and answering requests from nato countries to work with coordinate with and keep the alliance um, not just existent, but make it even stronger. So that's what's really happening in terms of the NATO alliance. The rela- because it's because it's a military alliance, I think there are all kinds of other benefits uh, as well, obviously, in terms of maintaining a certain set of values, in terms of the uh, lots of other reasons that, that you want countries to be aligned. But where it really matters, the, the, actually the U.S. military to military operations are are strong and that the president's bombast is really actually can mostly be ignored and to the extent that it helps um get the other countries to pick up their uh spending on their uh, on their military then that's good for the u.s the the most amazing thing i learned in the course of this uh reading is that for the last 22 years belgium and the netherlands have literally shared a navy 
It's two separate countries, and they have <laughs> Good one. Good for them. Navy. Who needs? Everybody doesn't it's need so to have cute. their own navy. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Great seafaring nation. I mean, I guess, too. John, my question, I like your benign explanation. And, like, if they pay their bills or pay more for their defense and we get to spend less, I guess, like, good. But I wonder about whether you can ignore the president's bombast if it has implications for how Putin in particular sure. behaves. Like, if it's yeah. an invitation for Putin to test NATO and try to further weaken it whether that's election meddling or it takes a different form, yeah. then it seems like whatever, you know, coalition yeah. building, like solid wall, you know, alliance stuff uh, Mattis is doing, it could be overwhelmed by something that hasn't happened yet, like by facts on yeah. the ground that we can't quite foresee. Right. The downside is that um, countries make their decisions based on predictable uh, arrangements. And one of the beauties and benefits of NATO is that this is a solid, stable, predictable thing that has ensured peace in Europe for the last 70 years. You want, you need stability because the, the uh, events are unpredictable enough. So why come in there, rattle this thing, cause uh, a meeting that should be focused on other security concerns? Why turn it into a, basically a sideshow only for the president? When you create instability, other countries make their own bets. And that means not only members of NATO, but as you say, Russia. So sure, the alliance might be there in the end to counter Russia. But why give Russia an invitation by suggesting the alliance is weaker because of the actions of an American president? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Here is a fight I did not expect to read about. Earlier this year, in the spring, the United States bullied, lobbied, and harangued other nations in an attempt to water down a statement by the World Health Assembly, which is a sort of the governing body of the World Health Organization, a statement by them promoting breastfeeding. Ecuador had planned to introduce this statement, this uh, statement of goodwill, of policy and something. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have the force of law, but it's the force of sort of recommendation to protect, promote and support breastfeeding. The statement condemned certain kinds of marketing practice of certain foods towards mothers and with babies. United States officials in the State Department HHS threatened Ecuador with trade sanctions and the loss of military assistance if it introduced the resolution. And U.S. sort of went around trying to talk people out of supporting this resolution. Eventually, Russia went ahead and introduced the resolution more or less as it was written, and it passed. Russia was not threatened, apparently. So, Emily, um, what to make of this? I mean, I have so many, so many thoughts about it. What to make of this? Well, I mean, yeah, it's... It's there are various things that are interesting. I guess, though, what seems overarching here is that the companies that make formula wanted the United States to water down or block this resolution. And so that was what the United States tried to do. And there's an important distinction here between 
breastfeeding in the United States and I don't know, maybe Europe and breastfeeding in the rest of the world, especially places where water is not clean. So in the United States and especially in, you know, wealthy blue cities, there has been maybe like too much pressure to breastfeed on women. And what I mean about that is that if you have trouble breastfeeding and you don't breastfeed exclusively for like a year, People judge you, or at least you might feel judged. And I think that is a problem. Like, that is a kind of level of zealotry that has gone too far. And Hannah, your dear wife, has written about this more probably than anyone. So you know a lot about this, maybe. (laughs) I hope. Um, And, you know, I say this like I loved breastfeeding. I completely recommend it if it works for you. I think it's like one of the most powerful experiences of my life as a mother. I totally am on board for it. But I don't think that women should be made to feel like failures if it's not working. And if you have clean water and other good nutrition, then the health benefits of breastfeeding are not so great that we should be like beating people up over it. However, In the developing world where water is not clean and nutrition is not good, it is a real problem when women feel like they need to spend money on formula instead of breastfeeding. I mean, there's a study from The Lancet from 2016 showing that, you know, we would save umpteen dollars, but also save, I think, 800,000 lives if um, a year, a year, which I kind of don't believe if breastfeeding anyway. It was high. I also was a little bit wanted the sort of um, I wanted Hannah actually to write about that study and tell me what to think. But in any case, it, it seems clear that there are important health benefits internationally. And also, of course, there's this irony that like conservatives who believe in family values, one would imagine would promote breastfeeding as like a thing that they would want women to do. And so the idea that the corporate profit part of uh, the equation trumps, forgive me for the metaphor, those pro-family baby health concerns it seems upsetting. It's weird. We should, Go ahead, John. Note that the administration denies it did any of this, but... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you should say sure. that out loud. <laughs> I'm sure none of it happened. Yeah, you should say it louder. I mean, they do deny well, it. Well, they we do. No, they deny it, and the there record. are two two important things to say that they deny. They deny that the that the threats were made to Ecuador, um, and there was also some reporting. Was this in the Times piece that that they even threatened the World Health Organization um, by saying they were going to pull some by funding. saying they were going to pull funding? Yeah. So um, did it matter the, to you that those denials were from some anonymous government official? I was really yeah. like, well, I mean, really it, weird this to is, me that nobody in the Department of Health and Human Services. Could come forward with their name and yeah. explain anyway. Sorry. Right. Well, it was anonymous source to anonymous source, right? I mean, you have because because I think the Ecuadorian stuff is all anonymous as well. Yeah, but it so, just seems like if someone from the United States government yeah, wants sure. to say like, "Here's our position," it like what's right. the big anyway? Sorry. Especially since they right. said because in the response they were saying, "How dare you claim that we weren't." Um, Emily, was there anything in this idea that there was there a substantive argument that just could have gotten muddled in the way these get things get discussed, like in terms of breastfeeding after a certain age or um, any context to this? That I mean, maybe I just wasn't sure what was true or not. Like, I never read anything that had the actual full wording of the resolution in its initial form. So it was really hard for me to tell whether the resolution went too far um, in the way that Molly Hemingway for The Federalist was claiming. Did you have a way of sorting that out? Yeah, I, no, I didn't. I mean, there was it was um, 
I mean, the, the idea that the U.S. threatened Ecuador was all based on anonymous sources. So that should make uh, us all skeptical. But then the pushback against that wasn't very strong. No. You know, in other words, the, the, the denials were, as you said, not on the record. Um, you know, it does seem clear that Ecuador was supposed to introduce something and didn't. And Russia ended up introducing it. But a Russian official speaking anonymously, but as a Russian official said, you know, look, we are, we're not being like heroes here. We just didn't just seems wrong for these countries to get bullied. So at least there's and the I mean, so there, so there's there are multiple sources saying something fishy happened yeah. and there's no I can't imagine what it, Ecuador, why Ecuador would withdraw it if they didn't feel right. there was some threat. It's not right. Right. No, and it's the a other good thing that the Times- I found dismaying was that this was part of the time story, I think, that. The United States has also been trying to prevent countries from banning advertising, targeting kids from soda companies or attack like the whole notion that these sugary sweet drinks are also a health risk, which we have mounting scientific evidence for um, that America is also going around throwing around its weight on behalf of the soda companies internationally in these health forums. And that I found like just as disturbing. You know, as I was talking to Han about this this morning, she was saying, in some circumstances, you can make a case that 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 formula is as important as the pill. Formula is this enormous liberator of women and has right. had huge economic benefits in especially, as you point out, Emily, in places with clean water and good nutrition where it's safe. It's relatively safe to feed a baby formula. And it's it, and, and the formula companies are in in many ways they are. They're doing something that's highly noble and good. And and it's it can be true that it is both a positive good and yet a worse option. And it can be true that it is both a positive good and yet also needs to be regulated and monitored and the way it is marketed needs to be controlled. It seems to me like this that that it's a classic case of the cat sunstein like nudge. That this is a this is a case where where significant sort of regulation and monitoring and and encouragement of the right sort is is necessary but you do want that you you do want formula to be available and you and for for many women who we all know the ability to feed their child with formula has allowed them you know peace of mind it's allowed them to hold jobs that they otherwise might have lost it's given them uh freedom it's given them and it's given their baby a chance to feed after health difficulties so it's it's it is it's not it's not a simple question Right. I mean, I think the 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 place specific analysis is so crucial here, right? Like if you're in nudge land, the answer of how you would want to create the regime that leads to like the optimal amount of breastfeeding, but also like the possibility of formula feeding for people who need to go back to work and who don't have the luxury of being, being able to pump or it does just doesn't work out for them. The 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 nudge answer in the United States is different than right. the nudge sure. answer in a developing yep. country. Right. Like really, yeah. really different. And I right. sometimes feel like we lose sight of that as American women. Um, we're thinking about our own circumstances too much in this conversation. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, 
which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having a, um, I'm not sure. I don't think there are co- cocktails made from breast milk. That would be some, that, there's probably some weird subculture where people do that. I don't really want to know about that. So, <laughs> and yet you brought it up and now well, y'all have I'd, to I'd think about it. I'd like to try it. to connect Great. my cocktail chatter introduction to a previous discussion. And, and so <laughs> what we're talking about breast milk, you could, maybe you could make a, make, make a white Russian with, with Infamil. Anyway, when you're having your, your Similac white Russian uh, on your porch, John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? Well, uh, I don't know that this will be what I will chatter about, but anyway, that. <laughs> I was listening. I was premise, John I, I know. I realized I was being incredibly Why is it so fast- hard all of a sudden. That was so weird. I was being incredibly fastidious to the conceit, which is a pretty flimsy one in the first place. Anyway, I apologize. But that was like a We're super. We're gonna follow you around with the camera all weekend, and if you have a drink and you don't talk about whatever you say I next, suddenly, I don't I know suddenly, what happens. I then? suddenly got hyper, hyper, hyper literal. That was very weird. I'm so sorry. Anyway. So I was reading about Laurel, Laura uh, Ingalls Wilder because of her um, uh, the recent uh, removal of her name from a prize because of her um, because of her writings and her beliefs. And absurd. anyway, this has nothing to do with absurd. that. Um, so absurd. So anyway, we don't anyway one of the things I learned in reading about her was about her time on the in the American frontier, and I started to um, and and that she lived through some of the most the biggest and most um, extraordinary locust hordes. Um, and I thought like, well, how bad could the locust hordes be? I mean, I know obviously they're in the Bible. Oh Tell my God, do you remember the scene from the book? Yeah. They yes. can be really bad. I know. Well, I had not come across that scene. And then <laughs> I started to look, I mean, it's it amazing. The Banks of Plum Creek, is that the right book? So, oh my God, I'll never forget that. I'm yes, sure on the Banks, the Banks of Plum, of Plum the, Creek. On the Banks of Plum Creek, very well done. Yes, the, the like they're b- being attached to her clothes, but I mean, they so they eat would, all the crops. It, yes, like, and forces them to move. It's right, totally it destro- devastating. It destroys the family, them, only and, to be outdone by the long winter. Go ahead. But so they would throw rugs over their gardens to try to protect them, and the locusts would just eat through the rugs and then get the garden. They would they would take huge like swaths of tar and spread it to smear it on the and just hopefully that the, the locusts would get stuck in it. I mean, it was just these like desperate attempts sh- firing shotguns into the sky. And in 1875, the species formed the largest recorded swarm in the history of humankind. 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide, which equals the combined area of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont. They were a weather system. And this, of course, destroyed thousands of farms and families, which she records on the banks of Plum Creek. Anyway, and then like 20 years later, after that massive swarm in 1875, they basically vanished. And the last collection of a live Rocky Mountain locust was made uh, 100 years ago in 1902. So that's what I know. Good. All right. Emily, what is your cocktail chatter? 
All right. I am returning to the Supreme Court, so forgive me, but this is for both of you. So this comes from Adam Sternberg's Twitter feed, and I think he also wrote um, a New York Magazine piece online about this uh, or related to this. SCOTUS fun fact of the nine current justices, and that includes Kennedy, six are oldest or only children. Three are middle children. That's Kagan, Kennedy, and Roberts. There are no youngest children. Scalia was an only child, as is Gorsuch, as is Kavanaugh. And Adam also informs us that since 1915, the SCOTUS justices who were oldest or only children have shown strong conservative tendencies and generally upheld established ideas. It is middle children and youngest children who showed liberal tendencies and vote more reliably to change laws. So as younger children, you can uh, enjoy the more rebellious Supreme Court. I, you know, it's funny, you know. but Emily, I'm a young I'm a younger I'm the younger of two, but I'm a younger who acts like an older. I'm a I'm much I'm like you. I'm a I'm a you're an oldest and you act like an oldest. <laughs> I'm an oldest through and through. Yeah. It's so depressing. It's like the thing I like the least about myself. John, can maybe I, you can carry this mantle. Uh I'm a I'm a I'm a disappointment to everyone. Um, <laughs> did you know? Here's the thing. Here's the thing that I would take note of. I mean, we all know about the Harvard and Yale and all the damn Ivy Leagues, but don't we? Will, isn't it possible, David Plotz, as a member of the uh, Saint Almonds community, that you that there will be two gen- people from Georgetown Prep on the Supreme Court? Not just two people from Georgetown Prep. They were one class apart. Yeah. I, what I was wondering, Emily. Is did all and, the did all the conservative justices go to single sex? So I'm sure Roberts, oh my God. Kavanaugh, Gorsuch all went to single sex boys schools, religious schools. I think Alito did, but I, I that's an, and Thomas is the only one I'm unsure of. Thomas certainly had a Catholic education, but I don't know what, whether it was a single sex. School. I bet not. Okay, uh, my chatter. So first, I'm going to do uh, listener chatter. So as as you know, we've been collecting listener listener recommendations for chatter your wonderful things that you've read interesting things you've seen that you think would be worth uh sharing so i want to do one from zach hamed who's at at zmh and uh his his note was feels like something john or david would chatter about and indeed it is so he sent along a gizmodo link and it's it, to a story which is about the san francisco fire department's ladder making and it's fascinating and a beautiful essay about a photo essay about how the San Francisco Fire Department still makes its own ladders and it makes them out of wood, which you'd think would be crazy. Why wood burns? So why would you have fire fire ladders made out of wood? But their wood lasts forever. And so if you don't if it doesn't burn, the unlike aluminum, which you use it for a while, it bends, it it gets it it cracks. Wood uh wood, you know, tr- can go through you know, any number of lifts and, and, and as long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't fully burn to a crisp, it can be sanded down and reused. And so they have these ladders that are, you know, decades and decades old, uh, you know, 70 years old, which are beautiful and because they've been varnished over and over again. And then they're still making new ones out of these wonderful, wonderful, uh, very dense fir trees that they can still harvest in Northern California. So look at this Gizmodo story about San Francisco fire department ladders. It's great. And then my chatter is actually a wonderful Twitter thread that Anton Troynikov, who's at at a Troyn, T-R-O-Y-N, had this week, which is things that happen in Silicon Valley and also in the old Soviet Union. And it's just a list of just very funny kind of aperçus. So 
waiting years to receive a car you ordered to find that's of poor workmanship and qualities, promises of colonizing the solar system while you toil in drudgery day in and day out, living five adults to a two-room apartment, being told you are constructing utopia while the system crumbles around you, totally not illegal taxis by private citizens moonlighting to make ends meet, productivity largely falsified to satisfy appearance of sponsoring elites, Elite power struggles result in massive collateral damage, sometimes purges. Failures are bizarrely upheld as triumphs. Anyway, I found it extremely funny, and uh, I would recommend you take a look at the whole thing. You guys, the lack of any laughter suggests maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's a limited audience, but there are a lot of other people who retweeted it, so definitely there's a, there's a market for it. That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabfest. And please send us your cocktail chatters like movies that you've seen, books that you've read, great articles that you've read, like the San Francisco Fire Department. That was a wonderful one. Uh, tweeted us with your ideas for cocktail chatter for next week. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. And remember, we have a show next week at the Keswick Theater, Glenside, PA, just outside of Philly on Wednesday, July 18th, slate.com slash live to get tickets. See you there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.